I heard a great line the other day. Um, it was uh, when one of um, Tony Blair's advisors was asked by uh, someone from the media what Tony Blair's legacy was going to be. And uh, the person who went nameless uh, replied, um, Tony Blair's legacy is David Cameron. And I, I don't know whether that's a good thing or that's something awful, but um, uh, it was very sharp. And his point was that um, the thing that Tony Blair has done um, as much as changed the Labour Party has changed the uh, Tories. And, um, and there's been this transformation over the last decade in terms of what we expect our uh, leaders to be like, this sort of um, uh, uh, friendly, media savvy, um, uh, uh, down with the people sort of uh, uh, leadership. Um, oh, there was this other comment that someone said about... Um, about ties, about neckties, and uh, saying that nobody wears them anymore. Uh, Tony Blair very rarely wears one. Uh, David Cameron doesn't wear, wear one. Uh, American politicians don't wear them either. The only people who still wear neckties are uh, estate agents. Um, what, we've ex what we expect of our leadership has uh, changed radically, and uh, some of that's quite good, but uh, there's also something slightly uncomfortable about it. Um, our leaders have become uh, 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 somehow uh, not that different from our celebrities and it's as if that kind of cult of uh, celebrity, which uh, now dominates our uh, popular culture, uh, has uh, shaped our politics too. Politics has become fundamentally very um, pragmatic, and uh, we are uh, suspicious of ideals, really quite understandably, given uh, the history of the 20th century and uh, the damage that was done by uh, ideologies and uh, ideals. We're, um, uh, we want our politicians to be very practical and down-to-earth, now. But um, that lack of ideals is uh, uh, a concern, not least because political decisions are, are made um, not based on what is right, because often we're not sure what is right, but um, is based on what will be most uh, successful uh, at the opinion polls and uh, what's going to have the biggest chance of getting you elected. This passage we're looking at, uh, Isaiah 32, is a set of ideals. Um, it's actually more than that, it's a, a critique of the politics and the leadership of the nation of Israel, but I think it's fascinating because um, it uses that critique to establish some of God's ideals for a nation and for what leaders should be like. And uh, so let's hear from them. The passage begins with the promise of a reversal of um, uh, something that Isaiah was called to way back in chapter 6. Do you remember his uh, job was to go and be to proclaim the word of the Lord to a people who would be ever hearing but never understanding and ever seeing but never perceiving. And if you look at um, uh, verses uh, 3, 4 and 5, um, it says that the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed and the ears of those who hear will listen and the mind of the rash will know and understand and the stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. And it's a promise which is rooted in verse 1 in a king who will reign in righteousness and rulers who will rule with justice. And uh, so much... Uh, uh, it really quite familiar sort of territory for Isaiah, this promise of a coming king who will uh, uh, rule justly and uh, transform the nation. Um, uh, and it's not just that king, but uh, those who rule under him, ruling with justice. And then this beautiful picture, which is well worth remembering in, in verse 2, it says that each man, each individual, will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and like the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. This picture that it's not just the leaders who are great and noble figures, but that every individual uh, is somehow um, uh, stable and reliable, uh, someone who uh, can be trusted and who, uh, who is able to serve and bless and nurture those around them. 
But those ideals are set in contrast to the way that things really are within this nation. Look at verse 5. No longer will the fool be called noble, nor the scoundrel be highly respected. It's a picture of a, uh, a culture where it's not the wise and the good who are put in positions of leadership. But as verse 6 says, it's those who speak folly and whose minds are busy with evil, who practice ungodliness and spreads error concerning the Lord. And it's not just his character which is questioned, but it's the consequences of his actions. Um, uh, to the end of verse 6, he says, The hungry he leaves empty, and from the thirsty he withholds water. It's interesting that it's not just a failure of actions, but it's um, uh, actually the, the withholding of what people need. It's um, uh, a selfishness and a greed and a self-interest. And this is the character of the leaders of this nation. They describe these figures as uh, scoundrels in verse 7 whose methods are wicked, who make up evil schemes, and uh, their intention, to destroy the poor with lies. And why do the people uh, tolerate such corrupt and uh, worthless leaders? Well, verse 9 describes it as, um, well, says that this is the problem. Uh, it says, you women who are so complacent, rise up and listen to me. You daughters who feel secure, hear what I have to say. The reason why people tolerate such uh, poor leadership is because they're complacent, because they don't care, and because they feel secure. But that security is going to be wrenched away from them. Um, it says in verse 10, in a little more than a year, you who feel secure will tremble, and the harvest will fail, and uh, the trees won't bear fruit. And the reason for it is, um, is something we're going to discover next week when we look at chapter 36, the, uh, the nation is overrun. And as verse 14 says, that the fortress will be abandoned, abandoned, the noisy city deserted, the citadel and the watchtower will become a wasteland forever. But for now, I want us to um, look at this critique of a nation, of its leadership and of the people who follow. And uh, the first thing I want to say is that we, um, uh, I think it's entirely appropriate to resist the, the gender division which takes place here, the description of men leading and uh, women uh, following. Uh, that is uh, descriptive rather than prescriptive and the... Um, uh, intention is not to uh, put men in positions of leadership and women in uh, uh, positions of following, but it's a, a critique of people who take those roles. So actually this is a conversation about those people who uh, have leadership and those people who are under leadership. And so secondly, what this passage gives us is um, some uh, sense of uh, what God's ideals are about what leadership should look like and what it means to respond to leadership and this isn't just a, a political question, this is a, a question for the whole of our society, for um, our churches and our communities and our families. That within these things, within these institutions, how uh, should leadership look? And uh, verses 1 to 3 lay it out for us. Um, uh, verse 1 speaks of a king who reigns in righteousness and rulers who rule with justice. That the foundations of all of these things are righteousness and justice. And the description of what those things look like uh, verse 2, that those who lead will be a refuge for others. They'll protect them and not leave them exposed to the storm and uh, to leave them vulnerable. Uh, and verse 3, that they will refresh and sustain people, not leaving their lives in the balance. Um, it's a contrast to uh, verse 5, which spoke of the uh, evil leadership of Israel, which said, um, the hungry he leaves empty, and the thirsty uh, from the thirsty he withholds water. You see... God isn't just building a, a spiritual kingdom. This isn't what we're about, just saving souls. Uh, this is a rebuilding of society. And the picture 
at the end of Revelation 21 is of a, a new city, of a new Jerusalem, and uh, of a new society. And uh, the ideals which are established in a book like Isaiah are the, are the ideals which will come into place, come into being within that new society. And as the people of God, uh, we should be building our communities along those lines. So this is what leadership should look like within our community. And I think more than that, these are the, the values that we should be uh, struggling to state and articulate and to promote within our society, within our sort of political arena. These are things that we should um, uh, uh, challenge our politicians and our leaders to be like. Why? Because these are God's values. These are eternal values. These are things that matter. The other side of um, uh, Isaiah's critique of these people was um, his critique of those people who are led, and uh, I think this is really significant for us, uh, particularly when we start talking about the political arena. Uh, his criticism of them was that they were complacent, that they felt secure, uh, and they failed to mourn for all that was wrong in their society. Um, the problem was that they, they were comfortable and they had everything they need. They were self-interested and uh, blind to uh, evil and unrighteousness and suffering and injustice, and so they kept their mouths shut. And the challenge to us is to not be people like that, to be people who have eyes to see, who understand the things that matter, the things of God, the things that endure, and uh, to care about the things that God cares about. That should be the thing which motivates our uh, political conscience. We should be arguing and pressure and pressurising for these sort of things. Lots of people say that they're not interested in politics, that somehow it seems irrelevant to them and uh, that voting makes no difference. And I can totally understand that. But uh, I fear that we get the politicians that we ask for. We get these sort of um, bland celebrity politicians because we never ask for any more than that. And the process of starting to raise these issues um, isn't going to have an immediate effect, but we should uh, be raising them because over time, as these things uh, resonate with people and gather momentum, uh, my hope would be that we'd start to get the politicians that we wanted. There's that old saying, isn't there, that um, uh, uh, never, never imagine that a small group of committed people uh, can't change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. Um, are Christians arguing for these things? Do we care about these things? Or are we like these people uh, in Israel who were complacent, who were comfortable and who felt secure and so never spoke out? There is um, a beautiful verse in the middle of this. It feels like um, Shakespeare to me. It's um, uh, uh, verse 8. And it says, uh, But the noble man makes noble plans, and by noble deeds he stands. The noble man makes noble plans, and by noble deeds he stands. I love that verse. Um, and wouldn't it be amazing if our politicians um, made statements like that, that that was their political manifesto? And likewise, uh, on every level of our community and our society, if uh, we encourage people to be noble, to make noble plans and to stand by those noble deeds. Now, this passage isn't uh, simply a description of the sort of uh, leadership that God uh, requires. Um, uh, these things are implicit in it. What it is, is um, a prophecy. It's a statement of how things will be. And um, uh, look at uh, verse 15. This is when things are going to change. Verse 15. Until the Spirit is poured out from, from on high, and the desert becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field like a forest, and justice will dwell in the desert, and righteousness will live in the fertile field. 
this passage of Isaiah is both a critique of how things are in Israel and a promise of how they will be when the kingdom comes. But I don't know if you're struck by that phrase, that um, the time when this will begin to come into being is when the spirit is poured out. And that is not a future event. That is a, a historic event. That is the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out on people of every uh, nation and tongue. It was the birth of the church. It was the uh, event promised by Jesus uh, uh, after his resurrection, which would uh, send people out with power. You see, the kingdom of God for us is not a future event. It is an event which we live in the midst of. Jesus would often say the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is within you. Uh, we live in the days of the kingdom of God. Of course, we don't live in uh, the fullness of that kingdom. But one of the most exciting things about uh, being a Christian is this promise that what we are part of endures. That this building of the kingdom is not something that will all crumble, that will decay or will rust away. But it's building something permanent. It's building something which will endure into eternity. And um, do you remember the parable of the the talents that Jesus told of the um, king who went away and left his servants with talents. And, and at the end of that story, the, the servants who'd been successful were the ones to whom the king said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in small things. You will now be trusted with great things. One of the things that I'm finding Isaiah profoundly challenging on is the sense in which it calls us to be part of building the kingdom of God, to, um, uh, to see our faith and our relationship with God, not as some passive exercise, not as some uh, exercise in holding on and waiting and trying to keep things safe, but um, of building the kingdom. And that's done through the power of the Spirit, which is poured out. This is the work of God in us and through us. And um, the consequences of it are in verse 17, that the fruit of righteousness will be peace. And the effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in, in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. So this passage is a challenge for us to critique our leadership, to critique what we understand um, by what it means to lead and what it means to follow. There's that huge challenge about um, the sort of self-interested complacency, which means that we don't challenge the way things are because, well, it's okay for us. And uh, in a world of such gross injustice, of uh, such inequality and poverty and exploitation, um, I think that's really very appropriate and something that we really need to hear. Why should Christians care about politics? Well, not least because they're um, uh, uh, profoundly important in and of themselves, but I would say also because um, the act of caring about politics is a prophetic act, that as we stand up, and speak out about God's concerns, God's values and priorities, the things that matter to him. So we uh, speak of his goodness, we declare his truth, and we speak that of the, the fact that he has um, a plan for humanity and a plan for this world which is so much better than the alternative. And then finally, I, I think this just um, uh, helps us to ask some questions about what we do with our lives. There's been a, a sort of traditional Christian view that um, uh, the, the really good jobs, the jobs that people should do are uh, either being a vicar, obviously, or being a teacher or a doctor or a nurse. And you know, those are obviously really, really good jobs. But very rarely do I hear Christians talking about the idea that wouldn't it be great for Christians to be really good journalists or really good politicians? Because the, uh, the reality is that that is where the power lies in our society. And um, 
We should be asking those questions. We should be uh, asking those questions about what we do. We should be encouraging people in those directions. We have a political agenda which is profoundly good and of God. We, um, we build the kingdom as we uh, instill these values, not just in our own churches, but uh, in our communities and in our, in our nation. Um, we long to see uh, this kingdom come. And that only happens by the work of the Spirit. But what Isaiah is showing us is that the work of the Spirit is these things that we're talking about. It is justice and peace and equality and righteousness. So at the very least, I would say on the back of this, that um, next time an election comes around, think very seriously about your vote. And think about how you vote in a way that um, uh, uh, reinforces these values of uh, God's values. Um, but more than that... Uh, there was something I remember uh, Bono saying when um, he was interviewed by a church leader about what Christians could do about the issues which he's campaigning on HIV in Africa and global debt. And uh, he was saying, well, I need your prayers and your money, of course. But the thing that I need more than anything else is your moral outrage, because that's the thing which uh, provides a political will to change things. Um, uh, Claire Short tells the story of the G8 summit, which was the summit in um, uh, Birmingham in 2000, where a lot of the debt relief um, uh, uh, principles were put in place. And uh, she said, said the thing that was shocking to the politicians inside was that there was protests going on outside. But the people protesting weren't the normal protesters. They weren't uh, young people dressed in black. No, they were ordinary people. They were... Um, uh, little old ladies from middle England with tartan rugs and uh, flasks of tea and um, uh, the Christian community turned out in force and uh, they uh, gathered around that summit, joined hands and prayed and uh, Claire Short said that that had so much impact on that meeting because people realised that these were the people who voted for them and they cared about this issue and they were outraged at this injustice and it made uh, one of the most significant political shifts happen. So uh, never imagine that uh, you can't make a difference. Never imagine that these things either don't matter or if they do, you can't do anything about them. We should be a political people. And uh, I'd love us as a church to be much better at having political conversations. Um, not the old party political conversations, not arguments about right and uh, left and right, but um, uh, political conversations rooted in what we understand of God's character and how we can go about um, uh, uh, seeing that worked out in our world. So remember that verse from Isaiah, which will stay with me. Verse 8, um, the noble man makes noble plans, and by noble deeds he stands. And that is our political manifesto. That is what we are about. That is what leadership should look like in our church, in our families, in our um, community, and in our nation. And that's God's values. So let us... Um, let us throw off this apathy, this lack of caring, this idea that politics doesn't matter and that leadership is something that we can't do anything about. Let us, um, uh, let us shout about these things. God cares about politics. He cares about leadership. And so should we.